0: This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology
1: at Cornell University. Hello, this is Carl Pillimer. I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research, and welcome to our podcast series, Doing Translational Research. My guest today is Professor Peter Lloyd-Sherlock, who is a Professor of Social Policy and International Development at the University of East Anglia in England, and Peter is also a visiting scholar here in the Bronfenbrenner Center, and we are very excited to have him with us. If you are interested in the topics Peter is going to discuss, he'll be giving a talk in the Center in October, and a recording will also be made available, so you can access both of those on the Bronfenbrenner Center web, um, website. And welcome, Peter, to the Bronfenbrenner Center and to the podcast series.
0: Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be here.
1: Great, and we're glad. We hope you're adjusting well to our environment. Um, and I'd like to begin first by asking you, uh, before we get into some other more specific questions, if you could tell us a little bit about your main research interests or to summarize those a bit. Um, Another way to think about it that we sometimes ask our guests is, what are some of the biggest questions that your work is trying to address? And because we share some interests, I have a general sense of your interest in aging and policy and development. But it'd be interesting to hear a little more about the kind of research questions you look at.
0: Absolutely. Um, Well, um, my main focus is I'm a gerontologist And I'm especially interested in a whole range of issues as they affect the lives of older people in poorer countries, what we often call low- and middle-income countries, unlike high-income countries like the UK or the United States. And I've been working in this field for about 25 years. Um, Because not many people um, in high-income countries take an interest in these issues, I've touched on all kinds of different policy-related issues, be it pensions, health, social care, family relations, um, and um, with a particular focus in Latin America, but also carrying out research in Asia and parts of Africa?
1: Um, I think if we were to look at sort of general public opinion, over and over we hear the enormous numbers of young people in these countries, that, you know, and even that some of the problems they experience is this vast reservoir of youth is, this sounds like a simple question, but to what extent is population population ageing even occurring on a large scale in some of these countries?
0: Well, that's a good question, and I agree that many people um, share that misconception. There's a very good website, um, United Nations Population Division, which will give you information, demographic information for all countries in the world. So if you look on that website, and if you look at the global population aged over 60 over time, you will see that more people over the age of 60 were living in developing countries back in 1980 than in what they define in the United Nations as developed countries that was back in 1980 and believe me since then the proportion has increased very considerably indeed the reason being is that of course more people on the planet as a whole live in developing countries so we have to distinguish between relative aging the percentage of a population that's aged over 60 let's say in Brazil and absolute numbers there's a lot more old people living in Brazil than in Belgium. So when you look at it like that, you can see why it makes sense from a global perspective, if you're simply interested in human beings living on this planet, to probably spend more time looking at old people in low and middle income countries than in high income countries. Although, of course, most gerontologists tend to focus on high income countries. What's particularly important as well, and in a way this is this is. Shaped the way my own research has evolved over the years is that what we're seeing now are increasing numbers of people at very old ages in low- and middle-income countries, people over the age of 75 or 80. And, of course, that poses particular challenges in terms of health conditions associated with later uh, later old age, social care issues for highly dependent older people, Um, and, and those are things that I've become increasingly interested in. Previously, I was mainly focused on issues around retirement and pensions, which has got more to do with perhaps people in their 60s than people at these very old ages. Um, So in a way, the the demographic changes in these countries um, has led my own
1: changing set
0: of research interests over time.
1: Uh, Well, that's really interesting. And this may seem like an obvious question, but in comparison, say, to the U.S. or or the U.K., in your work in very low-resource countries, what is the overall status of older people? I mean, I'm assuming they're um, a substantially more at risk for all kinds of adverse events and issues and lack of care. But is it? Are they in sort of a dire situation in some, you know, developing countries because of lack of resources or, you know, other structural difficulties? Um, sort of how big a problem is life for older people in some of the least resource countries?
0: Well, that's a good question. And again, I'm really glad that you distinguish between the least resourced countries and what we might call middle income countries. Because another tendency I've found among um, the less enlightened gerontologists is that they have a very polarised view of the world. There's the developed world and there's the developing world. I
1: might even say guilty as charged.
0: (laughs) I'm sure not. But but I think it is very important. You know, Brazil has a lot more in common uh, with high income countries uh, than it does with Burkina Faso in Africa. Um, So I very much appreciate the fact that you're really focusing within this broad category on, on the least resourced countries. In terms of the situation faced by older people there, historically, it was felt that if you survived to old age and you survived at old age, you were probably from a relatively privileged subsection of the population. Otherwise, you were unlikely to reach that age. And so there was a sense that particularly if you were a man, Uh, You would probably be a patriarch. You would probably have considerable influence over your social networks. And relative, at least to other people in your society, not relative to an older person in the USA, you were probably fairly well provided for, bearing in mind the lack of infrastructure for healthcare services and so on. Certainly your material needs were being met. That's changed. Um, If you look, it's very misleading to look at life expectancy in poor countries because actually a lot of people die when they're very young. Most people... In countries where you don't have a lot of HIV-AIDS, if they survive early life, they are likely then to go on and survive for a considerable period of time at old age, even if they're living in relatively poor rural communities. So that story of um, age, old age being um, an experience of privilege is becoming less and less applicable in um, very poor countries today. There is a myth that families are there for them and that there are strong cultural traditions and norms of solidarity between generations. But these are countries, even very poor countries, where there's tremendous um, uh, instability, political instability, social instability. And of course, they undermine these institutions and their capacity Um, to support older people and there's also very rapid cultural change in terms of ideas about responsibilities between different generations so there's a lot of diversity but um, broadly speaking I think there are older people in countries like let's say Burkina Faso the one we mentioned before um, face more uncertainty and more insecurity um, than their forebears did
1: That's extremely interesting. And let me ask, because I know that the work on pensions has been sort of a hallmark of work you've done. Is there, can you tell us a little bit about some of your current work on that? Like, for example, I think some listeners might be surprised to know that pensions even exist in certain countries. Is this a growing trend or is, so? what are some of the research and policy issues around pensions that you've been working on?
0: Yeah, um. More people in developing countries don't have pensions than do have pensions. But a surprising proportion um, do have access to different kinds of pensions. And these include what people in international development call social pensions, which are basically a kind of government anti-poverty cash transfer. So they simply give money because they consider them as being in need. You don't need to make your pension contributions through your um, workplace or whatever it might be through your private savings um, and, and, and these are considered to be quite an effective uh, way of reaching older people who are in greatest need and some people claim that that also benefits their wider households because older people often share their pension benefits with other household members although we have to be careful to make assumptions about um, how harmonious those relationships might be. And I've certainly, over the years, um, been a very strong advocate of extending those sorts of pension schemes across poorer countries. And I started off about 15, 20 years ago doing some research in Brazil and South Africa, where even then they had quite generous pension schemes, social pension schemes, looking at the effects that they had on the well-being of older people in their households, comparatively across the countries with a couple of quantitative and qualitative surveys, working very closely with a large um, international non-governmental organisation called Help Age International, which has really been at the forefront of trying to encourage poorer countries to, 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 to implement these sorts of programmes and generating then the evidence that they really needed to support some of their arguments.
1: Uh, that's uh, interesting stuff, and I and I wanted to actually. This made me think, or it segues into our sort of next question for you, which uh, one of the things that we like to touch on in this podcast is the actual experience of researchers engaging with uh, agencies, governmental organizations, um, a whole range of a whole range of what we might call community partners for the work they do, mm-hmm. and I know that you've had a wide range of work with groups from the World Health Organization to the UN to other entities. So one question for you is um, what has that experience uh, been like for you? Have you encountered any um, challenges in coordinating the work you do with these kinds of organizations and anything that has worked to overcome those challenges? Or how do you... You've been drawn to work, it seems, that involves sometimes collaborating with sort of real-world um organizations were interested in what that experience was like and and thoughts about it
0: well overall i think it's absolutely essential if you're interested particularly in working in areas related to public policy that you can work with organizations that are not primarily academic organizations Um, so you know despite the you know frustrations and the challenges of doing that you know i think it's 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 non-negotiable uh in terms of what i do um I think it's very useful to always remember that these are not academic institutions and not to fall into the trap that the way you approach your research and your epistemological approach to um, looking at knowledge and understanding the world is is very different to theirs. So, for example, NGOs, uh, non-governmental organisations such as the one I referred to before, um, are primarily interested in evidence um, as a tool of advocacy, And without putting it too bluntly and without being too unfair on those sorts of organisations, they often have an argument they want to make and they then seek evidence to support that argument. Um, And as an academic, you have to be very clear with those organisations that you are not an advocacy researcher. You are an academic and therefore you want to be supportive and helpful. Sometimes you want to be a critical friend. Um, But it is really important to maintain a degree of academic integrity. And what I've learned over the years is that then they come to increasingly value you because they realise that um, you might not always tell them what they want to hear. Um, But, you know, that's your USP. That's your your, your particular role um, in this bigger game. So I think that's a very important thing to bear in mind. Um, International organisations, big UN agencies... Clearly, their their role isn't um, in terms of um, so, so heavily focused on advocacy and trying to influence other actors. But nonetheless, they are often looking for evidence of things like, for example, best practice, UN agencies are always looking for lovely examples of things that work very well. Uh, They often don't want um, examples of worst practice. And I often find as an academic, worst practice is much more enlightening than best practice. So, again, you have to manage those relationships. And as I'm sure other people say on this podcast, um, the key to managing those relationships is working with people over time. Delivering what you promise you're going to deliver, because I think sometimes academics, at least in the UK, can occasionally be a little bit flaky about timekeeping and terms of reference. But, you know, you have to nail that. You really have to make sure you're the guy they know they can come to who will do what they say they're going to do, will stick within the parameters of the contract, but may at the end of the day um, tussle with them. Over some findings. I mean, if you'd like me to give an example, I was working with an NGO that's very interested in social pensions and extending social pensions in Africa a couple of months ago. And I supported them with some research about what are the best ways to improve the health of older people in poor countries in Africa. And they were very keen to argue that by giving older people a little bit of money, that was the best way to improve their health status. The evidence that we collected did not entirely support that argument. And they weren't entirely happy with uh, the direction in which the evidence was pointing. And they published a large report on their website, which has already had, I think, several thousand downloads. And I found myself playing the role, to some extent, of a spoiler. Um, These are people I know quite well. And I had to strike, to some degree, a compromise as well. Um, This isn't something I would ever publish as an academic, but it does bear my name, between saying, well, of course social pensions are wonderful things and I'm not saying that we shouldn't um, invest money in social pensions but where you have no healthcare infrastructure whatsoever giving people a little bit of money probably isn't going to empower them and where people have very little health literacy you know they are as likely to spend that pension money on alcohol or tobacco you know you have a big problem with obesity even in countries like Ghana so you have to, you know, there's always a bit of push and pull on this.
1: Well, I think it's a fantastic example of that dilemma. And all of them, you know, there are also the dilemmas of time frame. People want things fast, etc. Mm. And I love your concept, and I'm going to have to think about this, of worst practices. Mm. Because that is sort of brilliant, that we think about identifying best practices, but also identifying worst practices is a whole other important area of endeavor, which I hadn't thought of. Now, um, so let me ask you a before our time is up. Um, but, but, but within the general area in which you do research, what are some things you would like uh, the general public to understand? Or like another way to think of it, if there's a change that you would like to see brought about as a result of the work you do, is there some sort of dream you have um, for real world impact? If you could Wave a magic wand based on the work you do, either in terms of knowledge or in terms of policy change.
0: I'm full of dreams. And because I work in lots of different areas, I have lots of dreams. Uh, And in a way, I think, you know, I like to sort of, you know, not just focus on one and then there's more chance that maybe one of my dreams will come true. But if I were to select just one at the moment in terms of engaging with the public particularly the public in the sorts of countries I work in, it would be to challenge the view that there is no need for public policy relating to the social care of older people, that this can purely be left to families. There is a a very strong myth in, um, in, in countries in Asia and in Latin America and in Africa that families provide wonderfully for older people's needs when they become care dependent and that is increasingly firstly untrue and secondly even where it does occur it's often extremely inequitable in terms of the burden of care that falls on various women within the household so it's not necessarily um, a, a wonderful arrangement from everybody's perspective. So and I think within that to say that social care always has a cost in every part of the world. It's either born by the state, it's born by private out-of-pocket expenditure, it's born by unremunerated family carers who are often exploited, it's born by exploited paid workers in the sector, and it's also born by care-dependent older people who don't get the services they need. So if you think of costs not just in terms of money but in um, foregone potential quality of life, Um, then clearly you can see there is always going to be a cost. And the big decision for any society is to have an informed debate about where you distribute that burden of cost. Uh, And that's the same, I guess, in the States and in the UK as it is in Burkina Faso, to keep coming back to that very different example. Um, And that is the message that I'm, at the moment, really trying to establish.
1: I think that is an argument that occurs here internally that underserved minority populations don't need the services because their families pick it up. Mm. So I think that we, we've experienced that argument, for example, with Hispanic families here in the U.S. for a long time. Mm. So, so I think that even works internally within countries, too. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, Peter, I wish we had a lot more time to talk to one another. Uh, And folks can hear more from Peter Lloyd-Sherlock, who is my guest today, because he will be giving a talk here at the Brenner Center in October. If you are nearby, you can attend, and you'll be able to find it at our website uh, if you are not able to attend. And so thanks again to our guest, Peter, and we look forward to having the rest of you join us on our next episode of Doing Translational Research. Information about translational research or the work of the
0: Brockfenbrenner Center, please visit
1: www.bctr.cornell.edu.